Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For today's show, I have a dilemma that I did not think I would have, or at least I haven't had for a good two years. And that dilemma is... I have too many movies to review. (laughs) And a lot of times when I've been doing this show over the last couple of months, I dedicate probably about 15 minutes to the first movie. Well, I can't do that now because instead of my usual three movies to review, I have five movies to review for this week. And those are not even all the new movies that came out this week. For example... Among the movies I wanted to watch this week but couldn't, and I might get to them next week depending if I have time or not, is the Disney Plus original movie Rise, which just came out on June 23rd, 2022. Also came out on June 23rd, another movie I didn't have time to see, The Man from Toronto, which is a Netflix original. I didn't get to see those, but I did get to see most of the new movies that came out in theaters this week, as well as some other uh, streaming originals that I didn't get the chance to watch until this week. So my first movie that I'm going to be reviewing for you is Elvis. And this is the latest film from director Boz Lerman, the Australian uh, director, I almost said actor, I don't think he's acted before, who's brought us such movies, and this is just limited to movies, as William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, Moulin Rouge, starring Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman, And the remake of The Great Gatsby, also starring Leonardo DiCaprio, as well as Carrie Mulligan, Tobey Maguire, and other such actors. So he does, Baz Luhrmann does the same thing with Elvis' life story that he does with all the other films that I just mentioned. He makes them over the top and really emphasizes the music. And this was a tactic that I thought worked very well with Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge, although Moulin Rouge was sometimes a little bit too much to take. I don't think it worked as well with The Great Gatsby, but sometimes it did. And Baz Luhrmann's musical ambition is very evident in this movie, Elvis, which tells, as you might expect, the story of Elvis Presley from his humble childhood in Tupelo, Mississippi, I hope I pronounced that right, forgive me, Southerners, if I pronounced it wrong, to his rise to stardom starting in Memphis, Tennessee, and his conquering of Las Vegas, Nevada, Elvis Presley becomes the first rock and roll star and changes the world with his music. And that's really not an exaggeration. And I think this movie does a very good job squeezing uh, the very complicated life of Elvis Presley into a two-hour and nearly 40-minute movie. And one of the prominent themes of Elvis's life here is his rise in the 50s, his sort of career slowing down in the 60s, and then a reemergence in the late 60s to early 70s, especially as he becomes the first popular entertainer that I know of that holds residence in Las Vegas. Or let me just make that a little bit more clear. He's the first rock and roll star to claim prominence as a, 
a stay and entertainer in Las Vegas. And that was as the mob influence was going down and the influence of your average tourist was going up. And his best friend and worst enemy during this rise to fame was his business manager, Colonel Tom Parker, who's played in this movie by Tom Hanks. And I should also note that Elvis in this movie is played by Austin Butler. And Austin Butler does an amazing job playing Elvis. Austin Butler uh, is not a newcomer to acting, but he had me sold as Elvis when he was a young performer first starting out and during his last few years in Las Vegas in the late 1970s when he was well when Elvis was well past his prime. As a matter of fact, there's one scene where it shows Austin Butler in a lot of latex makeup um showing Elvis as he was old and well, let's face it, fat as he did his last poignant performance as Elvis in Las Vegas playing Unchained Melody on the piano. There's a scene at the very end where Austin Butler is playing Elvis, and then they show the real Elvis in the same show playing the same song, and I honestly could not tell the difference between the two. So Austin Butler is amazing here as Elvis. Tom Hanks, because he's the bigger star, gets top billing as Colonel Tom Parker, and frankly... I don't exactly know if Tom Hanks was right for the role of Colonel Tom Parker. Not only because this is the first role of Tom Hanks, probably since Catch Me As You Can, where he doesn't play a particularly likable person, but he also has to be believable as somebody who is as influential, not only to Elvis, but to other people who are, for example, booking Elvis on stage or on TV, as the real Colonel Tom Parker undoubtedly was. And truth be told, I didn't know very much about Colonel Tom Parker as I was going into this movie. For instance, I did not know that Colonel Tom Parker is a native or was a native of the Netherlands and he came to this country illegally when he was 20 years old and he his career really took off when he was in his 50s and he discovered Elvis Presley while managing some other country music artists so i would probably say tom hanks does a decent job as colonel tom parker but i don't think it's his best role and i also did not quite get the accent for which Tom Hanks was was trying to go here. So that was a little bit of a disappointment. But then again, there are some scenes between Tom Hanks and Austin Butler that are gold. But Austin Butler is really the breakout star of this movie. And I did appreciate Baz Luhrmann's over-the-top direction because I do think that there are some other films about Elvis that, well, first of all, they were mostly uh, made for TV, but also that they were very straightforward biographies. For example, the 1979 made-for-TV movie with Kurt Russell as Elvis, the 2005 made-for-TV movie with Jonathan Rhys Myers as Elvis, and I, I could go on uh, for now. But I think that knowing Boz Lerman, he did write with the music being over the top and also some of the uh, dancing and the the chore the choreography in this film, I think it worked for Boz Lerman's vision 
to a certain point. I do think that Boz Lerman can get a bit overly ambitious. For example, there are scenes where Elvis is going into the black part of New Orleans in the early 1950s, striking up a friendship with B.B. King, who in this movie is played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., who does a very good job playing the late B.B. King here. But there were, there were some scenes where there were songs that undoubtedly influenced Elvis, like the original Hound Dog by Big Mama Thornton, and that's just to name one song. And there's a, sort of a techno beat put at the um, as the song's being played, which I did not disagree with, particularly knowing Boz Lerman like I do. But there were times where rap music was intersected into that uh, those scenes, and I really thought that the rap music did not fit in very well, particularly given the time period. So I think Boz Lerman, even though he has an affection for rap music, should have left that out, and thank God he didn't have Austin Butler as Elvis rap himself. Uh, that would have been absolutely disastrous. But Elvis is certainly a very ambition, an ambitious film, and I credit it for its ambition. Sometimes some of the contemporary music, particularly rap music, was intersected there, and I don't think it really fit very well. I also may have may believe that Tom Hanks was miscast as Colonel Tom Parker, but just about everything else in this film worked. And if it hadn't been for Austin Butler's great performance here as Elvis, I think the movie would have been undoubtedly lost. So as I was leaving the theater, and I went to see it on the night of June 23rd with my girlfriend, I was torn between giving this movie a knockout or a checkout. And the movie does have some problems. It's not a perfect film, but I do give it a marginal knockout because I do think it does a great service to Elvis's music. I think as time has gone on and some of Elvis's best-known songs, the ones that really put him on the map, are turning 70 around this time or are very close to being 70, I do think that pop music does have an inevitability to sort of lose appreciation from mainstream audiences, including those people who grew up with Elvis's music and sort of take for granted how much of a big deal Elvis was. I think this movie reminds you very much of when Elvis's music was was relevant, why it was relevant, and it also places a lot of emphasis on Elvis's inspiration from a lot of black artists at the time and how it was a big deal for him to bring a lot of that music to the mainstream. I think that the movie Elvis does that very well. I think that Boz Lerman had a vision that really worked for him, sometimes to a fault, but there are too few faults in the movie Elvis to mention. And with that said, Elvis has left the building. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Black Phone, which is the latest from the horror movie juggernaut, Bloomhouse Productions, produced by Jason Bloom and directed by Scott Derrickson, who has directed some films uh, that have been 
horror-themed, such as The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is more of a courtroom drama than a horror film, but it has some horror elements in it as well. He also directed Deliver Us from Evil and the original Doctor Strange movie, but he's back directing his first film since the original Doctor Strange. And The Black Phone is a movie that's not so much horror as much as it is suspense, but it certainly has some horror elements, but not necessarily where you would expect the horror elements to be. And it is about a 13-year-old boy whose name is Finney, and he's played by Mason Thames. His last name is spelled T-H-A-M-E-S, so I will presume that his last name is Thames. And after being conducted by a, excuse me, after being abducted by a child killer who's played by Ethan Hawke and locked in a soundproof basement, which is every person's nightmare, not just every parent's nightmare, this 13-year-old boy, Finney, starts receiving calls on a disconnected phone from the killer's previous victims. And these previous victims, all of whom were um, adolescent or prepubescent boys, which all of a sudden, yeah, which is not a very pleasant topic in the slightest, but what, what would you expect from Bloomhouse Productions? These boys give Finney a way to get out of this soundproof basement. And Ethan Hawke is, plays a character only known as the Grabber. And it's not a spoiler that Ethan Hawke is the villain here. Although I would not have expected Ethan Hawke to play a villain, usually because in a lot of his films, and I don't think he's played a villain up to this point, although I could be wrong, but oftentimes he usually plays a protagonist or oftentimes a very nice guy. So Ethan Hawke is playing against type, but he is also very scary in this movie, particularly because you rarely see Ethan Hawke's face and he usually wears a mask that looks like a very, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> as I'm discussing horror films, my voice kind of goes out. But as I was saying, Ethan Hawke wears a mask that covers sometimes the upper part of his face, but always the lower part of his face. And when he's in a good mood, he wears this mask that has a big exaggerated Milton Berle size smile on it. And that's still pretty creepy because it's a big, big smile. But when he's not in a good mood, his frowning lower mask is also very scary. But what I really liked about this film was that Ethan Hawke was actually not the scariest part of this film. You would think he is being a child abductor who's about to kill this poor boy, Finney. But actually, I found that the calls from this disconnected phone from his five previous victims were also kind of scary and got me and made me flinch when I least expected it. But that's not to say that these spirits who are conduct who are contacting Finney from this phone don't have good intentions. It's just really scary as they, as their spirit comes back and not just through the phone. There is a bit of a deus ex machina in this film where Finney has a sister named Gwen, who's played by Madeline McGraw, who has these psychic visions that enable her to conjure up clues to see where Finney was. And I actually didn't think that was entirely necessary. I actually thought that if the movie just focused on Finney being in the basement 
for the most of the time and getting these clues from the phone itself, almost as if it was a black box or a one act play. I think that would have been intriguing in and of itself. I didn't necessarily think that the sister was needed, let alone that she needed to have psychic powers. I thought that was a little too contrived. I also thought that you had Jeremy Davies playing Finney and Gwen's father, Terrence, who is an alcoholic, and his transformation as a character, I thought, was a little unnecessary. Plus, Jeremy Davies sometimes plays a little too over the top, and I did think that his over-the-top performance here was not entirely necessary either. But the scenes between Mason Thames and Ethan Hawke are very chilling and very scary. And it turns out there is another character who is kind of the town conspiracy theorist. And this, by the way, takes place in 1976 when... Conspiracy theorists were a bit more endearing than they are now. Now conspiracy theorists are just plain annoying and even more annoying than the town conspiracy theorist here whose name is Max, who's played by James Ransone. But actually the connection between Max and this child abductor is actually a a decidedly good twist without giving away too much. But The Black Phone, I think, was one of Bloomhouse Productions' most legitimately scary movies so far this year. And scary movies are Bloomhouse Productions' bread and butter for sure. So I give The Black Phone a high checkout because I did think that Ethan Hawke, I did not expect him to be scary, especially because he usually plays a good guy or a nice guy. But here he is legitimately scary, and I would not have expected that. I thought Mason Thames did a great job playing Finney. I think that Madeline McGraw is a good actress, and she plays the role as his sister very well. But her being psychic and having these uh, clairvoyant dreams, I thought added a bit too much of contrivances to this movie, but it was a good call for this movie to take place in the seventies, because if this movie took place present day with most people having smartphones, I think this case would be solved probably in a couple of minutes. So the black phone, I think worked when it stuck to what it was good at, but when it incorporated archetypes that were more like stereotypes and added certain deus ex machinas, it didn't quite work. But when it worked, it really worked. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe. This is the second Beavis and Butthead movie that has ever been made. And it is the first Beavis and Butthead movie that's been released since 1996 when Beavis and Butthead scored a number one hit at the box office a year before Titanic with Beavis and Butthead Do America. And Mike Judge came back not only to co-write 
the story and the screenplay, but he also voices many of the characters, including Beavis and Butthead both. And in this movie, Beavis and Butthead are back, although they are back in the year 1998, where they accidentally set their gymnasium on fire during a science fair. Not that they particularly care. They are brought to court. They are found guilty, but by a very sympathetic judge who is probably not thinking very clearly, he sentences Beavis and Butthead to space camp at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. But after being blasted off in a NASA space mission to Mir, but Mir is no longer in the uh, Earth orbit right now. Now the International Space Station is. But back in 1998, it was. Beavis and Butthead, as you would imagine, botched the mission. And they are also excommunicated from their space shuttle by their more experienced astronauts, including one particular astronaut whose name is Serena Ryan, and she's voiced by Andrea Savage. And Beavis and Butthead are on this mission under the false pretenses that they're going to have sex with Serena Ryan when they are in space. Obviously, that doesn't happen, but Beavis and Butthead are expelled from their space shuttle in a way that doesn't really make sense when I'm describing it, but it makes perfect sense in the movie. And while they are suspended in animation, no pun intended, in outer space, they're actually sucked into a time portal, which brings them back to Earth, but back in the year 2022. So you have Beavis and Butthead who are still teenagers because it would be really, really sad to see Beavis and Butthead in their 40s and 50s. But they are adjusting to the year 2022 while still on their mission to have sex with Serena Ryan. And this movie is... The the tagline of this movie is the dumbest science fiction movie ever made, which may or may not be true, but it is undoubtedly the funniest. And I was not the biggest fan of Beavis and Butthead when it was a show on MTV. And I even went back to Paramount Plus and watched the Mike Judge collection of Beavis and Butthead. And I think with music royalties, they had to take out Beavis and Butthead's commentary on music videos, but... They a lot of their commentary is on low quality videos that are on YouTube, and that seems to do it for me. And those are those are what I thought were the best parts about Beavis and Butthead. But it was really aggravating because even though Beavis and Butthead are funny, as I was watching the show, I was really beginning to think to myself, there is no way that two people who are this stupid would be able to function in society at all without being locked up either in prison or in a mental institution. And that is true. But I think the, the selling point of this is Beavis and Butthead is not meant to be realistic. It's meant to be funny. And I think it actually does succeed. As a matter of fact, I laughed more at Beavis and Butthead do the universe than I did at Lightyear. And Lightyear was not supposed to be a straight up comedy, but it was supposed to have its funny parts. But I did actually think that Beavis and Butthead do the universe succeeded uh, in making these characters as predictably dumb as you might expect. But if you're in on the joke, you will find this 
subversive comedy with these subversive characters very funny, especially when Beavis and Butthead are in the year 2022. They discover smartphones and that you could pay for things using a smartphone and the things that they buy using these smartphones, especially when you're very familiar with the characters from the original MTV show is very funny and very in line with their characters. I do know that Mike judge brought Beavis and Butthead back to MTV back in 2011. He created a new series, but MTV has changed a lot since the original Beavis and Butthead went off the air in 1997. Not just the world changed, but also MTV changed. In the 80s and 90s, most of the people who watched MTV were people of both genders who, or shall I say multiple genders, who were in their early, uh, late teens to early 20s. And I think ever since Beavis and Butthead left MTV, the demographic of MTV was largely preteen girls, which is still kind of is today if they're interested in watching 24 hours of ridiculousness. So I think MTV is on its last leg, but thank, thanks largely to Mike Judge, Beavis and Butthead still remain dumb, yes, but also they're very funny characters if they're put in the right context. And I did think that the Maybe it's not realistic that Beavis and Butthead would be sent to space camp by a judge, but I thought it actually was very funny and not contrived at all the way that Beavis and Butthead are considered by very, very smart people for this mission, for these smart people who really don't know that Beavis and Butthead are just a bunch of idiots with only a few things on their mind, among them being sex and nachos. But... Beavis and Butthead did do the universe worked very well. It's a Paramount plus original that started streaming on June 23rd, 2022. I'm very surprised that it wasn't actually released in theaters because it was uh, Beavis and Butthead do the do America was number one at the box office in 1996. I think if it was released in theaters, it might be number one at the box office now, but I don't keep track of that kind of thing anymore. But Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe is probably the one of the best Paramount Plus original movies released so far. And I think it does what Paramount Plus uh, does really well. It takes characters that we know, maybe not necessarily love, and actually makes good use out of them as Paramount Plus is starting to do in its second year as a streaming platform. And the animation actually on Beavis and Butthead is both true to its original 90s show, but also incorporates a lot of modern day animation. And actually, some of the animation was reminiscent to me of uh, the show Arthur on FX. And I think it worked really well, which is why Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe gets my rating of a knockout. If Beavis and Butthead were actual characters who were uh, acquaintances of mine, in real life, I would absolutely hate them. And I, I think actually the the way that other characters who are really smart and maybe not quite as smart as they should be in this film uh, react to them, I think works for the story. It may not be realistic, but it neither is getting sucked into a time portal and being transported back to Earth to the year 2022. But the things that really worked about Beavis and Butthead do the universe really, really worked. And given how stupid the characters are 
and how comical they are as well. Beavis and Butthead do the universe is undoubtedly maybe the dumbest science fiction movie ever made. But as I said earlier in the, in the review, it may be the funniest one ever made too. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Cha-Cha Real Smooth. This is a film that is out in select theaters now, but it was originally released on Apple Plus on June 16th, 2022. Because I don't have Apple Plus as a streaming platform, i.e. I don't subscribe to it, but I'm considering subscribing to it if the uh, considering that the movies that have been released on Apple Plus have been pretty high quality, including but not limited to Coda, which won Best Picture this past year at the Oscars. But Cha-Cha Real Smooth is a film that is directed by, uh, written by, and starring Cooper Rafe, who is only 25 years old, but already... He has directed three films, and this is his third feature film that he has directed. Before this, he hasn't directed commercials or short films or music videos or anything. He directed a film called Madeline and Cooper back in 2018. He directed another film in 2020 whose name I can't mention on this show because this show is clean. Let me just say the name of the movie is S-House. And no, that's not the actual name of the movie, but think of a latrine or an outhouse and the derogatory name of that. That's what his last movie was before Cha-Cha Real Smooth. And for a guy who's only 25, it is amazing the roster of talent he has recruited for this film. His love interest in this movie is played by Dakota Johnson. His mother is played by Leslie Mann. And his father is played by Brad Garrett. These are not easy actors to get for a film for a guy who's in his mid-20s. But this is a movie where Cooper Rafe stars as a young Jewish man named Andrew who's just out of college, and he works as a bar mitzvah party host. And a party host, by definition, is somebody who gets out and gets people to get onto the dance floor. It's not quite the same as a DJ, but he does actually serve as an automated DJ at some of the bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah parties he hosts. But he does eventually befriend a young mother whose name is Domino, and yes, that's her real name, who's played by Dakota Johnson. And Dakota Johnson is in her 30s, and I think nowadays, considering people in uh, in their 30s are less expected to uh, have children, it's kind of jarring to see uh, Dakota Johnson play a mother, but she is 
a mother to a young autistic teenager named Lola, who's played in this movie by Vanessa Burghardt. And Vanessa Burghardt, I think, I don't know if she actually is autistic, but she has probably the best performance, uh, well, the best portrayal of an autistic person that I've seen in a long time. And I, I'm not going to get into the specifics here because I have five movies to review, but she does a good job in this movie. I think Cooper Rafe does an amazing job playing a young man who doesn't quite know what to do with his life after college, which he graduated. He didn't drop out. He does have a girlfriend who has moved to Barcelona to, uh, for a Fulbright scholarship, and he is seriously considering making the move to Barcelona to be with her and raising money to do so while he not only lives in his parents' house, but he also shares a room with his younger brother, David, who's about the bar mitzvah age, who's played by Evan Asante. And even though Cooper Rafe and Evan Asante are not related, as far as I know, I totally believe them as being uh, brothers because they certainly had that dynamic. I will say, though, that when I was 23 and I graduated college, I did move back home with my parents, but I did have my own room. If I moved back in and had to share a room with my brother, I would be devastated. I would just be crying every night. But um, Cooper Rafe's character, Andrew, takes it in stride and good for him. And I also loved Leslie Mann as Andrew's very dedicated mom. Certainly um, what you would expect from a Jewish mom, but I think Leslie Mann plays a dedicated mom uh, very well. And Brad Garrett plays the stepfather of Andrew. He might be the biological father of David, but I also think the dynamic between Andrew and his stepfather, Greg, is very realistic. They're not always they're not always on edge and they don't hate each other, but they also don't see eye to eye in a way that I think is particularly realistic of the relationship between step parents and stepchildren, particularly well-meaning step parents. But the driving force of the story is the relationship between Andrew and Domino, i.e. Cooper race character and Dakota Johnson's character. And I think the chemistry between the two of them is very palpable. It's not always necessarily great, but it's not always necessarily bad either. It's just realistic, especially when there's a bit of a love triangle that forms between Andrew Domino and another uh, armed services member named Joseph, who is dating Domino. And Joseph is played by Raul Castillo. Unlike Andrew, Joseph has his life together, but he's also, again, like Brad Garrett's character, not a bad dude, but there is some tension between Andrew and Joseph, particularly because of what the two of them want. And I also think that the movie begins very well by showing Andrew as a 13-year-old boy and sets the story up very well regarding how he falls in love with various people and why he falls in love with various people. And it also sets the tone of the relationship, the, the strong bond between Andrew and Andrew's mom, again, played by Leslie Mann. And Leslie Mann, by the way, does not have a character name. She is only known as Andrew's mom, but she doesn't necessarily have to be. But with that said, I think that Leslie Mann does make her a very strong and very realistic character as well. So Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which is the, the title of the film, 
is certainly uh, based on the cha-cha slide, which is a very popular dance that's played at weddings, reunions, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, you name it. And I think that actually works as the title of the film, particularly where the cha-cha slide comes in in a very um, convenient way in this movie as well. But I have to give kudos to Cooper Ray for directing and writing this original film when there are people his age in film school who are dreaming of making a movie like this. And I haven't seen Cooper Ray's first two films, but based on this film, I don't necessarily have to. He's off to a great start as a writer, a director, and an actor. And I would imagine that given that he's... <laughs> He doesn't remember the year 2000. He probably makes this film the same way other young filmmakers make theirs films, which is he probably shot this film on an iPhone or an iPad, but he really subscribes to that Robert Rodriguez philosophy of if you want to make a movie, go out and make one, and that is commendable. Fortunately, he also made a great film here, which is why I give Cha-Cha Real Smooth my rating of a knockout. I was very impressed by Cooper Rafe. I was very impressed by Dakota Johnson, who I've always admired as an actress in any movie she's been in, except for the ones that um, start with the words <laughs> 50 shades. And this movie is certainly no exception. It's fun in some parts. It's devastatingly dramatic in some parts, but Cooper Rafe as a filmmaker brings that balance really well, and that is very unusual for a filmmaker who is 25. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Jerry and Marge Go Large. This is a comedy drama film directed by David Frankel and written by Brad Copeland. And it's based on Jason Fagone's 2018 HuffPost article of the same name. The film stars Brian Cranston and Annette Benning as real-life married couple Jerry and Marge Selby, who live in the small town of Everett, Michigan, which is right outside of Battle Creek, Michigan. And Jerry Selby worked for 42 years as a production line manager at Kellogg's. And Jerry might be written off as a typical factory worker, but he actually has a very good head for mathematics, which is when he realizes that there is a mathematical loophole in the windfall lottery, which is a national lottery or semi-national lottery that takes that initially was formed in Michigan and Massachusetts. And Jerry eventually finds out that he can buy several, in fact, hundreds of of lottery tickets under various numbers and can actually cash the winning lottery tickets in and gain a profit from it. 
And he does have losing lottery tickets, literally barrels full of them, but he only keeps those for tax purposes. So he figured out a loophole and he and his wife, Marge, uh, Marge is played by Annette Benning buy hun- tickets by the hundreds at first in Michigan. But then when Michigan shuts the windfall lottery down, they make a 10 hour trek to Massachusetts where they befriend a convenience store owner, a small town convenience store owner in Western Massachusetts, whose name is Bill, who's played by Rain Wilson. And they let him in on this secret as well, as long as they are able to access his lottery machines to buy their tickets. And the, the great thing about, uh, Jerry and Marge Selby is that they don't just keep the winnings for themselves. They use their money to revive their small town, but eventually they come into, or they reach some Let me just say there's another Harvard student who also discovers this loophole and that causes friction between these small town folks and these cocky Harvard students who are also very smart. And I also should note that what Jerry and Marge Selby did during the windfall lottery was not illegal because after all, the lottery says please play responsibly, but it doesn't tell you how many tickets you should buy. And they, they purchased a substantial amount of tickets. They save the tickets just in case they get audited, which given the fact that they make millions, there's a very good chance of them being audited, but what they're doing is not illegal. And I think that Brian Cranston and Annette Benning make a believable married couple, but they also make Uh, a couple whom you want to root for throughout the film. And that really doesn't um, fade away as this film takes place. So Jerry and Marge Go Large premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival on June 15th, 2022, and was released only on Paramount Plus on June 17th. 2022. And I think depending on your taste in movies, Jerry and Marge go large, may be the breakout movie that Paramount plus might need to be taken seriously as a streaming service, especially amongst the other giants like Netflix or Hulu. I think that kids, maybe not kids, but older teens to people in their twenties and thirties would subscribe to Paramount plus for Beavis and Butthead do the universe and they won't be disappointed when they see the movie, but people who remember Beavis and Butthead when it premiered on MTV and got caught up on the controversy might not want to see that film, but they probably will want to see Jerry and Marge go large, especially with a great uh, leading performance by Brian Cranston and Annette Benning, with excellent supporting performances by Rain Wilson, Larry Wilmore, Michael McKeon, and Anna Camp, amongst other people. But it's a movie about underdogs. It's also a movie about small town, working class heroes, and it works incredibly well. And it's also kind of a sort of a con artist film, but it's not exactly a con artist, but it's also largely a feel good film. And I think arguably this film might be the best of Brian Cranston and Annette Benning's career. And Brian Cranston, of course, 
this wasn't his first role, but it was certainly his breakout role as Walter White in Breaking Bad, who starts out with the right intentions, but eventually grows evil as the show progresses. But thanks to Brian Cranston's largely charismatic performance, you are rooting for him and you might feel bad as you're rooting for him as Breaking Bad progresses. You won't feel bad for rooting for Brian Cranston in this film. And Brian Cranston, unlike other uh, TV anti-heroes like James Gandolfini, has chosen his film um, movie, or rather chosen his films as a leading actor very well since Breaking Bad has ended. And Jerry and, large go, uh, Jerry and Marge Go Large is no exception, which is why I give Jerry and Marge Go Large my rating of a knockout. This is a film that came out a week ago, and I didn't get a chance to review it for you on last week's show because I didn't have time, but I'm so glad I was able to review it for you for this show because it's it's great to see Paramount Plus investing in really exciting and original films like Jerry and Marge Go Large and Beavis and Butthead Do the Universe that will appeal to a wide array of demographics. But Jerry and Marge Go Large is overall a feel-good film, but also a very exciting film, and it's one that makes you root for the underdog. And I've just spoken enough praise about this film. It's definitely worth the Paramount Plus subscription price, if only for a month. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And before I get to my next segment, which is what's coming up next, which is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for this coming week, I just want to say this is my first show in months, maybe even years, where I've reviewed five movies. And I thought that I was going to run out of time talking about these films, but fortunately I didn't. And I'm going to strive to try to see five movies per week from now on. I may not always succeed, but I will keep those reviews down to 10 minutes as opposed to going off on the deep end like I have been since I moved to Nashville and with a radio station that's not quite as well-programmed as my previous radio station, Boston Free Radio, where I kept my talk breaks to a good seven and a half minutes. I'm going to strive to do that from now on. But Radio Free Nashville has largely been good to me. They've been giving me a platform, and I'm thankful to them, especially given that I'm not just hosting a radio show. I'm working on a dream, and I will continue to work on that dream. But now it's time for my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of June 26th through July 1st, 2022. And just in time for the 4th of July weekend, the biggest movie that is going to be released in theaters this coming week is Minions, The Rise of Gru. 
This is the second Minions film, but and the second prequel to the Despicable Me franchise. And Illumination is milking the Despicable Me movies for what they're worth. I've seen the first Despicable Me film. I haven't seen the second or the third one. I've seen the Minions film, and, you know, it is what it is. And Minions The Rise of Gru is a movie that I will see. And it tells the untold story of one 12-year-old's dream, that is Gru, to become the world's greatest supervillain. And this movie has these uh, yellow creatures who some find endearing, other finds obnoxious, who's, who speak this weird mix of Japanese, Spanish, and English, which I call Jap Spanglish, throughout the film. Steve Carell reprises his role as Gru, even though he's playing a 12-year-old. And also in this movie uh, is Taraji P. Henson, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and interestingly enough, this is not the first cartoon character that Jean-Claude Van Damme has voiced. Also, Michelle Yeoh, Dolph Lundgren, Lucy Lawless, Danny Trejo, Alan Arkin, Julie Andrews, Riza from the Wu-Tang Clan, Russell Brand. This is a killer uh, roster of voice actors here. A lot of great ones here. So... I haven't been entirely impressed with the Minions films. I know that little kids love them, but I could go one way or the other with them. But rest assured, I will see Minions The Rise of Gru, and I will review it for you on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters on uh, July 1st is a movie that's called Attack on Finland. And this is a movie that is um, foreign, and it... It is about Finland's Independence Day celebration on December 6th that is crudely interrupted by attack on the presidential palace, and a set of distinguished guests are taken as hostage. But security service officer Max Tanner, who's played by Yaster Pakanin, is set as the negotiator of the hostage crisis. And soon, let me just uh, go to the next page here, And soon it is clear that the main target behind the terrorist attack is a plan to destabilize the security of Europe. Max Tanner must make bold and even painful decisions to figure out who is behind the attack. After all, there is not only human lives to protect, but the future of Europe as a whole. Now, this film is a Finnish film, which is directed by Akun Luhimis, and nobody I know is acting in this film, so... This is a movie I might see. Chances are it might be a Netflix original, but I don't exactly know. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. There is another film that is probably going to be coming out on July 1st. And this is a movie that will undoubtedly um, attract the people who do not want to see another Minions movie. And the movie is called Mr. Malcolm's List. This is a movie that is actually based on a short by the same name that came out on 2019 that was directed by Emma Holly Jones and written by Suzanne Elaine. And this is Emma Holly Jones's 
directorial debut, uh, feature film directorial debut. She directed four short films before this one. And this is a film that takes place around the Jane Austen era, but very much like Bridgerton, which is Shonda Rhimes' hit show on Netflix, it has a multiracial cast as upper-class aristocrats, which is not historically accurate, but I am not against a multiracial cast in this kind of movie. But this will undoubtedly appeal to fans of Bridgerton. I have not seen Bridgerton yet. I watch movies, not a ton of TV shows, although some. But I will see this film. But just to give you an idea of what it is, it is actually not based on a, a... a book by Jane Austen or anybody in Jane Austen's era, but it is very Jane Austen esque. It is about a young woman who courts a mysterious wealthy suitor in 19th century England. The movie stars Theo James, Zawe Ashton, Oliver Jackson Cohen, Frida Pinto, Ashley Park, and Sope Dirisu, amongst other people. As I said, this is a multiracial cast playing upper-class people in 19th century England. I, I think that's actually after Jane Austen's time, because Jane Austen was more 18th century than 19th century, but still sort of the right idea. I don't know how this movie's going to be. It's got a stellar cast, even though it's not... Maybe the most historically accurate cast, but I will see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters is one that's called Rocketry, The Nambi Effect. This is not only going to be released in theaters, but it is also a Netflix original, I believe. And it is based on the life of ISRO scientist Nambi Narayanan, who is falsely accused of being a spy and arrested in 1994. Though free, he is still fighting for justice, with those police officers alleged to have falsely implicated him still free. The director and co-writer of this movie is a guy by the name of Madhavan. Yep, he is, uh, his name is, um, just Madhavan. And he is an Indian director who is 52 years old, although if you see a picture of him, you would think he was at least 35, and that is amazing. Maybe they should make a movie about how he looks so young. But Rocketry, the Nambi Effect is a movie that looks very original and very interesting. I don't know if I'm going to see it, but I will certainly look out for it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters around July 1st is a movie that's called Hot Seat. This is a movie you may not see at your local multiplex, but it's a movie that stars Mel Gibson, um, Matt Dillon's brother Kevin Dillon, and Shannon Doherty. I'm sorry that I, I said Matt Dillon's brother Kevin Dillon. Kevin Dillon is a fine actor. I just was blanking on his name, and I couldn't find his information just at that moment. But this is a movie about an ex-hacker who is forced to break into high-level banking institutions while another man must t- try to penetrate the booby-trapped building to get the young man off the hot seat. This is a movie that is not coming out on streaming as far as I know, but it would probably benefit the film because it is unlikely that this movie would become a hit, especially on July 4th weekend. But if if I see the movie, and that's a big if, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. 
Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.